I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Where we add a little bit of our own opinion to the meat of a celebrity memoir. And if you don't like what we have to add, you can punch me in my fucking face. (laughs) And another thing is sometimes we're reading words that we've never seen before and so we'll get them wrong. And if you feel that deeply upset by the mispronunciation of a word, I would say get out now. Your fragile little brain isn't going to be able to handle our hot, hot critiques and our tiny little mistakes. And I hope that you treat the people in your real life with a little bit more kindness and compassion than you treat us because sometimes people have never heard a word out loud and they say it wrong. We're trying the best we can. And sometimes when we are trying to put out content every single week, we don't have time to Google every single word that's on the page. It's a lot more time consuming than you think it would be. That being said, we are taking a week off and this is your notice. I am so sorry, but we are taking a little vacation the week of May 29th. So mark your calendars. There won't be a new episode, but there will be a new Patreon episode where we will be discussing The Shift by Tinks. Wait, so we get a week off, but we still have to read a book. I guess I didn't realize that we were making the schedule. Okay. A book a week until we die, baby. (laughs) Um, Do you want to know some other news? Yeah, please tell me anything you can think of. We've got new merch. Oh my God, you guys, I have never been more psyched for merch in my life. This is like the merch that I live and died for. It is ugliest girl in the world attack merch for all of the girls out there who've sometimes had an attack where they go, am I the ugliest girl in the world? If you feel attacked by the potential that you may be the ugliest girl in the world, (laughs) all we can do is prescribe a comfy, cozy hoodie that you cocoon up in until you remember that you are in fact lovely. Yeah, I mean, there's 8 billion people out there. The chances that it's you are so slim. You haven't seen every girl in the world. <laughs> but sometimes it is you and you've got to go <laughs> Sometimes you look in the mirror and you go, unfortunately, I have done my due diligence. I've seen what needed to be seen and it is me. I am the ugliest girl in the world, believe it or not. Plus, we've got matching shorts. And overall, the vibe is something I'm excited to share. I'm so excited. I've never been more excited for anything in our lives. Adrian Perel's designed it. At Hello Adrian. It's also a limited edition run. So in order to get it to you guys as quickly as possible, we are pre-printing an amount. So if you're interested, I recommend signing up as quickly as possible because when they run out, we're out. Speaking of other things that come in a limited amount, there are only so many seats in the cities that we are visiting. We will be in Toronto, Atlanta, Nashville, D.C., Philly, San Francisco, Chicago, and Minneapolis coming up. The tickets are for sale in the show notes. It's also in Lincoln bio. If you Google us in that city, it'll pop up. And we are excited to get there. We can't wait to meet you. We're doing new stand-up, new shows. I love you. Okay, who's doing new stand-up? I had to like manifest it into the world. (laughs) I will. I'll have new jokes. I'm working on them right now. (laughs) In solidarity with the writer's strike, I actually don't think it's right that I write new jokes right now. (laughs) But by then, hopefully we'll have resolved. Anyway, Ashley, if you were a celebrity and you were writing a memoir, what would you call last week's chapter? I would probably call it, what other stuff is there to look at? Oh, you've been looking at stuff? Here's the thing. I don't know if you know this about me. I don't know anything about you. I'm just meeting you for the first time today. <laughs> I actually spend a lot of time looking at my phone. Huh. Yeah, it's true. And I have made a decision this weekend that I'm going to make a like extreme and active effort to drastically decrease my screen time. I really need to stop. I really need to get out there and see the world. And there's never a better time for it than this time we call summertime. I think that my plan, speaking of reading books on our weeks off, my plan is to get into book reading again. 
especially because I have outdoor space now and Bug loves to go lay outside and tan her belly in the mornings. Looking at your phone outside is a lot less enjoyable. And so I feel like if I have my morning time be like reading a book or doing a hobby that's constructive, I think that that will make my life better. Yeah, that's really exciting. So that is something that I'm working on right now. And I'm really excited to report how it goes. Claire, if you were to write a memoir, what would you title last week's chapter? Well, you win. Crisis. Are you happy? (laughs) The you being the bridal complex. I have taken a lot of pride, I would say, in being a relatively chill bride. I feel like I've not found wedding planning to be that stressful or difficult. It's making a couple of fun decisions. My mentality has been it's not that hard to have fun with your friends and it's not that hard for something to be beautiful. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, at the end of the day, it's like a backyard in New York City. It started out pretty. It can't get worse. I like dancing with my friends. It'll be all be fine. So much so to the point that a lot of people have thought that the wedding got called off because I have not put a lot of thought and chatter into it. You know what I mean? We're gearing up. We're getting close. So it's like going to take up more of my brain now. But for the most part, I've been like, it'll be fine. It'll happen. It'll get done and it'll be fun. And then I received my wedding dress and... I don't know if you guys know this, but I was very chill about the wedding dress. I went to one store. I tried on six dresses. I picked one. That night I went home and said, I feel really good in it. I said, I don't need to try on a million more dresses. I feel beautiful enough. If this is how beautiful I feel on my wedding day, perfect. I don't need to try on everything to get to the bottom of this barrel. And so I finally received it and I was so freaking excited. And um, would you guys believe it doesn't fit at all? And not in the normal way that like, oh, we're going to have to take it in here. It does not zip by a lot. It is so too small. I don't know that there's another option other than they have to make me a new one. (laughs) It is just like definitively the wrong size of dress. Okay, I'm not a mathematician, but the triangle that is being formed by where the zipper stops zipping and the two sides of the dress that will not touch, it's like four inches by four inches by four inches. It's like a full equilateral triangle. If you know the Pythagorean theorem, you could guess the volume. Yeah, literally. The angles are there for those who are willing to do the math. And (laughs) it is... It's so bad that I'm actually relieved because at first it didn't look good on me and I couldn't figure out what was going on. I was like, the proportions are all off. And it was like more than the proportions. The dress is not on. So now I'm like, okay, well, this is such a botched dress job that they'll have to make me a new one. But also like, we'll see. Maybe they won't make me a new one. And so I'm trying not to freak out. I am bringing Ashley to my appointment next week because if they don't see reason and try to fix this for me and aren't manipulated by my tears, I will send Ashley after them like a fucking bulldog because she's a psycho for those of you who don't know. I'm a psycho for justice. She's a psycho for justice. And I love that about her. She's got an appetite that will not be filled by anything but justice itself. So I'm bringing her. (laughs) I'm like Dexter. I only go after the evil ones. We will be updating the Patreon on how that situation goes down. But I was just like, well, I really thought I was going to cruise into September 9th willy nilly. And here is a giant multi thousand dollar problem on my lap. And it was funny. My friends were like, oh, we all have our dresses for your wedding. I'm like, well, not me. (laughs) I don't have a dress for the wedding. It'll be fixed. I'm not worried about it, but I am like, I'm not worried. I'm not worried. I'm not worried yet. I see that there is an opportunity where decisions could be made that could make me worry. Listen, there's an opportunity to become worried and to worry before that date for what? So if you see me May 17th in the afternoon hysterically crying, you'll know that that opportunity has come and I have taken it. (laughs) The worry has come to roost. But until then... Smooth sailing, baby. We hope for the best. We prepare for the worst. Do you know what I feel the best in? What? This chair. I'm so obsessed with it. It makes the horrible book that we're about to talk about so bearable. I was so excited to come in today because I knew that I got to sit in my comfy chair from Six Penny Home. These are the Devon chairs and I love them 
so much. I like come to the studio early just to like get a, a nice little chair time. In. I'm actually buying a six penny couch for my new home because they're so comfortable here. And like the most important thing to us for the TV room is that it's comfy cozy. And so I'm like, okay, well, I know how to make something comfy cozy. I actually am getting a six penny chair that I will be paying full price unless anyone from six penny is listening and wants to help me out. <laughs> like I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. These are worth it. These are amazing. I love this chair so much. The other day we were in this chair and it was me and Claire in one chair and Bug in the other chair. And I was like, God, these chairs are roomy because you know me and Claire aren't touchy. Yeah. No, there's room for two in one. We actually had you, me and Bug in one chair at one point. And we were all happy except for Bug, who is moody beyond what furniture can fix. (laughs) Should we get into this week's book? I guess we have to because we have to put out an episode this week. But if there was any way around it. I wouldn't. And I have something to say to the listeners. A lot of you recommended this book. And to you guys, I say, never speak to me again. (laughs) If you tomorrow DM me and said, I think you should keep breathing. And I scrolled up and saw you recommended this book. I would go, well, I'm going to hold my breath until I die. And I don't even care if you're offended because I'm offended. I'm offended that somebody who likes this book and not only read it, but was like, they have to read it. Please, you guys, it's different than the other comedian books. If you like this book and like our podcast, I don't want to know it. I found this book spectacular. I found it so remarkably not interesting or personal. It is a feat to write 300 pages and not really give up any of yourself, but like also not really be funny about it and also not be interesting about it. What's even in here? But like somehow it's pages and pages and pages of stuff. So this week we read A Very Punchable Face by Colin Jost. And boy, if you're worried that AI has come for your job, this was the first wave of it. This was literally somebody at the top of the CEO chain said, let's see if we can make a white male Harvard-educated Tina Fey. What if we took everything about Tina Fey and scrubbed down the edges until there was almost nothing left except for a very discernible joke structure? What if we said comedy shouldn't be personal or interesting? It should just be some guy saying, I have everything in the world, the hottest wife, the best job, a fancy degree. But one time I stubbed my toe and that was a bummer. But sometimes people don't want me to have all the things that I've accumulated and that's not fair for me. I guess it does make me think a lot about this trope of white guys saying that they look like a villain from an 80s movie. Like everyone hates me. Everyone's mad at me, blah, blah, blah. Everyone wants to punch me in the face. The thing is, people wouldn't want to punch you in the face if they didn't know who you were. What they want to punch is the fact that you are someone who has been handed every single thing life has to offer and you're still complaining that people don't like you enough. That is what is punchable about you. No, but it's also like his lack of cheekbone. There's something very doughy about him. I get it. Like it looks like your fist would land like like on bread. He has the thickness of a stress ball. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like you could punch me as hard as you want and nothing would break because there's no bones in here and then my dad will sue you. This is a book that came from a man who said, I've accomplished so much, I'd also like to have a book. And that was the first thought. He had a summer off from SNL. He said, what am I going to use my time? And he goes, I haven't written a book yet. I'd love to say I've written a book. I'm sure I have stories to fill a book. And then this came out. It is the equivalent of your uncle at Thanksgiving or somebody else, like your in-law uncle at Thanksgiving being like, I got a crazy story. It wasn't smart. It wasn't funny. It wasn't vulnerable. It wasn't like there was no things in it. And I can't believe he was able to write 300 pages where there was nothing. This book is a Wikipedia page, but like if Wikipedia had your medical records too. Barely. If your medical records were all just times you shit your pants. No, he gets stitches and he breaks his arm and he gets like an infectious bug disease. I guess that's true. There's a lot of like body stuff in here. It's Wikipedia and doctor's notes. 
reading this book made me think of something like Allison Williams said on Watch What Happens Live about being a Nepo baby. And she was just like, listen, like I get to have a great life. I get to do the job I love. And the difference is people aren't rooting extra hard for me because I'm not the underdog and you just have to deal with it. And all these Nepo babies who are so mad, like you're allowed to be successful. You are in fact successful, but you're not the underdog and people aren't rooting extra hard for you. And you just have to learn to live with that fact. That's how I feel about him. Not that he's a Nepo baby by any means. And like, I do think he worked very hard and got where he is. He's clearly very determined, but he also thinks that people should be rooting for him so hard. It's not just that he gets to marry the A-list movie star. It's not just that he gets to be the head writer of the most iconic comedy show in America. People also should be so fucking happy for him. Yeah. And I'm like, sorry, buddy, but you don't get it all. And if that's your big problem in life, that like not only do you have everything, but people aren't happy enough for you that you have everything, shut up. Like maybe he does work hard, but he spends this entire book trying to be like a regular guy. So either take credit for how hard you work and how hard you worked to get somewhere or stop talking because to sit here and say, I am extremely privileged. I am a handsome straight white man, but I'm just like you. I'm like, then why do you have the fancy job? Say you work hard. In the introduction, all he has to say is that he wrote a book because he likes books. It feels like he forgot the question he was being asked. He's like, what'd you say? Books? Yeah, books. I I wrote a book because of books being good. And it's like, well, not this one, my friend. And then he gets into the first chapter, Finding My Voice, which is about the fact that he didn't know how to speak until he was four years old. Which I think could be interesting. He says he still has a really hard time finding his words sometimes. And that's what he actually enjoys about stand-up and performing is putting himself in that position where he has to really just go for it. But for some reason, he can't say this in a way that's interesting or heartfelt or good. Yeah, he remembers that the speech therapist who helped him learn to speak was very beautiful and blonde. He would love to find her. Then he has a chapter about being from Staten Island. And this chapter is just a Wikipedia page for Staten Island. He explains that Staten Island is, in fact, an island and that everyone there is conservative, but they're not bad people. He says in the way that most of America has a good heart, but they're just stuck in their old timey ways. And I'm like, yeah, like the way that America used to be so great back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so important context for this book is that it came out in 2020 and it was a pre-COVID 2020, but still obviously a post-Trump world. So I do feel like to sit here and be like, you've got them all wrong. They voted for someone evil, but they've got good hearts. Maybe this, Colin, is why people want to punch you in the face. From a very powerful position, all you can do is reach out and say, listen, man, the racists aren't so bad. He also talks about how he doesn't feel like he's from Staten Island. Okay, wait, here's what I want to say. If you want people to think you're a good guy, then be one. I don't think he says that. Does he want that? What's the point of this book then? I don't think it's to be thought of as a good guy. I think he wants to be liked. I thought you like a good guy. No, not necessarily. That's true. Trump won. But I do think the point of this book was that he wanted to have said he wrote a book. Yeah. I don't think he gives a shit how people perceive him, honestly. Anyway, so he doesn't always feel like he's from Staten Island. and That's hard for him. The truth is, I've always had a chip on my shoulder about my hometown, but it stems from deep insecurity that I don't really belong anywhere. One of my favorite moments on Weekend Update was when fellow Staten Islander Pete Davidson came on and talked about how I'm beloved in our hometown and he's despised. But even Pete would admit that that's not entirely true. Pete seems way more authentically Staten Island than I do, which is probably fair, even though it's a little alienating for me. If I'm not really from my hometown, where am I from? So this to me is just like a weird elitist guys, because when you say he's not only from Staten Island, but like his mom's family goes back to Staten Island all the way to 1840. He's very enmeshed in the Staten Island world. So when he says, I'm not really from Staten Island, what he means is I went to Harvard. I don't fit in there because I'm better. 
Literally. He's like, I didn't die in Staten Island and I went to college. So I don't know. Am I really from Staten Island? I'm not one of those impractical jokesters. I'm one of the not ready for primetime players. I love that. Staten Island is the new Harvard Lampoon. Every white male comedian with success came from Staten Island. Chris Stefano, Pete Davidson, Colin Jost, the Impractical Jokers. I feel like there's a couple others too. Maybe we should be from Staten Island. I wish. The reality is Staten Island is like 90% of the country, slow to change, but most of the people are fundamentally good people. You know that we go absolutely nuts for snack time over here, and Nuts.com is your one-stop shop for freshly roasted nuts, dried fruit, sweets, pantry staples like specialty flowers, and more. Their wide selection means that there is something for everyone. From cashews to saltwater taffy, any craving that you have, they'll help you out. Nuts.com has plenty of gluten-free options, organic choices, and other diet-friendly products. Whether you're looking for something sweet, savory, or need to stock up on everyday cooking essentials, you're bound to find something to try. We have Nuts.com snacks in the office right now, and I am not exaggerating when I tell you we had to put them in the hallway when we were recording the other day because I could not stop eating the chocolate-covered gummy bears. I had no idea that that was the most delicious snack that had ever been invented, but here we are. We've got dried mangoes for the tried and true snack eaters, a handful of almonds for the Yolanda Hadid snack eaters. You can shop a la carte anytime or opt into hassle-free auto delivery so you never run out of your favorite items. And if you're already stocked up at home, they sell directly to businesses. Snack with satisfaction knowing that quality is top priority at nuts.com. They roast their nuts and pop their corn on the same day it ships so it reaches you deliciously fresh. Since 1929, they've been doing it the old-fashioned way. One taste and you will know the difference. Right now, Nuts.com is offering new customers a free gift with purchase and free shipping on orders of $29 or more at Nuts.com slash warm. So go check out the delicious options at Nuts.com slash warm. You'll receive a free gift and free shipping when you spend $29 or more. That's Nuts.com slash warm. The next chapter is the most boring chapter in the world. It's called You're Gonna Need Stitches. And it's about all the times he got hurt as a kid. Can you believe that? He was a kid who fell down or like ran into stuff. Can you believe that boys run around and play with each other and sometimes hit their head on things and bleed? Anyway, he writes, I think, 15 pages about it. I became a commuter at age 14. This is about the fact that he went to Regis, which is a very prestigious high school in New York. It's like a Catholic high school and thousands of people apply. They only take 120 and it's free. So that's the big boom. And it's for Catholics only. And he got to go and it was an hour and a half commute each way. He had to take a bus, a ferry and a subway, which is a lot for a teenager. But again, not that interesting. The thing is, he's like having to commute for 90 minutes every day. I liked it. But then he like tells you the funny stories and how he got to see the world. It helped him learn that there was a world outside of Staten Island because he would go into Manhattan and see people punch each other in the face all the time. And he loved that. All I'm saying is you've never experienced a New York sunset until you've seen it from the deck of the Staten Island Ferry as a seagull pukes up mouse bones onto your geometry textbook. Okay. He also sounds like a big dork. He never did drugs or drank. I wasn't always squeaky clean, though. Occasionally, I signed out of school under the guise of visiting a nearby museum, but instead snuck off to play billiards. Or my friend Milos and I would go to the knitting factory or a performance art space called ABC No Rio. He was on the speech and debate team. He actually was a competitive swimmer. This is where you find out that he is deeply competitive. And that is how he probably became very successful. (laughs) So he was originally a swimmer and he was a very good swimmer. I guess he went to the Junior Olympics. And then one day he was beat by this guy named Steve Depp, who he still looks up and competes with mentally from a distance. 
And because it was so competitive and intense, he quits by high school and joined the speech and debate team. Did you know speech and debate team people don't get laid? And he won a lot of awards for it. I guess he was really good at it. He also name drops every single person around his era in New York who also did speech and debate. Some of them are on Broadway now and all that stuff. There was always another tournament the next week where I would redeem myself. It's a lesson I still remember every week at SNL, where even the most successful writers and cast members get their sketches cut all the time. It sucks in the moment and it takes a few days to get over, but there's always another chance next week. And now we get to Harvard. Harvard University, not the other one. What is Harvard like? It's a really weird place, not just in terms of the school itself. The concept of Harvard is really weird. Of all the colleges in America, it has this other thing about it, which is partially just name recognition and partially some kind of mysterious aura that makes it feel like a gathering of the Illuminati. So then he says the crazy thing about Harvard is you get there and you realize like a quarter of the people are legacy, a quarter of the people are athletes, a quarter of the people are geniuses, and the rest are just like randos. And he's like, most people at most colleges could have passed through Harvard. But there are some exceptional ones. And so you get there thinking you were really good at something and then you find somebody who's actually good at it. Yeah, he says he like didn't grow up having people talk about Harvard. No one was really into Ivy Leagues in Staten Island. This was something that he discovered when he was doing speech and debate and he would go to colleges to compete. And he was like, wow, there are some real fancy colleges out there. And then he gets into Harvard. He's like, I wanted to go to UNC where Michael Jordan went. And I'm like, until when? When you say you never considered going to Harvard? At some point, you must have applied to Harvard. Are you saying like not until high school? Because that feels pretty reasonable. To this day, no one has ever met me and thought he probably went to Harvard. Most people meet me and think he might have gone to college. That's not true. You're the head writer for SNL who famously went to Harvard. Also, just like the Lampoon is a well-known feeder program into SNL. The joke is that a third of SNL writers went to Harvard. I guess I just think you're not some bum on the street. I'm not like, what is that homeless psychic doing? They have a Harvard degree. I'm like, yeah, you're one of the more successful comedy writers in the world. You came from a very successful comedy writing background. I mean, you look like an Ivy League guy. I get that you're like, I'm a Staten Island guy through and through. But you have that smug, mushy face of a man who wears salmon-colored shorts and boat shoes. Yeah, you got a soft golf face. (laughs) He walked on the crew team. Which, another thing. I'm like, okay, walking onto a college sport, he's like, I can't believe they let me on. What a bunch of idiots. Anyway, I quit after a year. I'm like, that's still quite impressive. I do think, though, crew will take anyone. I do think it's one of those sports where, like, because they only count the top three or four boats, there's not a finite number of people who could be on the team. It was like him and the Winklevosses. It's like running cross country. Like, a thousand kids could run, but we're only going to count the top five. I remember distinctly freshman year of crew, they were, like, big recruiters. They tried to get me in there. Anyway, he also talks about losing his religion, to quote Michael Stipe. Because people in college were really intense about it, so he stopped going. Yeah, he's like, I thought church was just family gatherings, and it turns out church is a bunch of freaks who yell at you, and I hate that. He was so lonely his freshman year that he ended up writing poetry. Yeah, that is actually really embarrassing to admit. Then he discovers the Harvard Lampoon. This is a famous comedy writing institution. It's very prestigious. They write a comedy magazine, and that's really important to a bunch of college kids and kind of the comedy industry as a whole. It's recently been reimagined as whatever magazine they're writing in the sex lives of college girls. Basically, he talks about how everyone there was a bunch of outcast weirdos. And he's like, "Ugh, I feel at home. Why would I want to be anywhere else? And I'm like, how outcast weird could they be? These are kids at Harvard. He's talking about it like a band of misfit toys. Unlike most clubs at Harvard, it's entirely merit based. It doesn't matter if you grew up rich or if your mom was on the lampoon or if your dad was Saddam Hussein. The writing submissions are disguised with fake names. So members vote purely on the content, not on the person submitting it. Okay, I have a lot to say about this. One, to say it's entirely merit-based. 
at an institution that is 40% legacy-based is very funny. <laughs> to be like, all you had to do was get into the hardest room in order to be considered for this other room. Next, who's judging it though? Because I do feel like if you have a group of people with like a very similar sensibility, they will read the writing of a more diverse sensibility and maybe there's not a name on it, but they can tell it's not their thing and they'll judge it. Like if you have a bunch of white guys judging, they're going to pick white guy humor. It doesn't matter if the name Chad Smith is on it. Something interesting is the whole castle was financed by William Randolph Hearst, who was actually kicked out of Harvard and he's removed from all of the yearbooks. The only proof is that he's on the masthead of the Lampoon. Is he the Hearst who was involved in that scary murder sitch? I don't know. I'd love to know more about that. You could very easily Google it. <laughs> he does give decent comedy advice. He says that if you want to get good at comedy, surround yourself by people who are also passionate about comedy. The faster you find friends who challenge you and sometimes make you jealous, the faster you'll grow as a comedian. That's true. In order to get in, he didn't get in until the third time he applied. And he said each time he wrote like 50 pieces that got rejected and then another 100 pieces that got rejected. And he said working there made him really good at just like churning out comedy every week. And a lot of it never got read, but it got him in that habit of just like write more, write better, which prepped him for SNL. This whole book is like, and that helped me for SNL. I will say the only thing that's ever happened in his life is SNL. So if every moment was a moment leading up to SNL, that is one of the only things it could lead up to. It's like the slumdog millionaire of how to get good at SNL. And it's like, go to Harvard, write for the <laughs> Lampoon. He says learning to do homework on the subway when there was crazy things happening, that helped him on SNL because there's a lot of crazy things happening on set, but you still have to focus on your lines. It was all preparation for SNL, baby. 30 Rock. Here's a good joke. After the lampoon, there was only one clear path. I was going to steal the Declaration of Independence. That's the kind of laughs you can expect from old Jost. I will say, I do think he's a good comedy writer. Like, I bet you he is a good writer. It seems like he has a lot of silly ideas. And I actually do like it when people are successful in comedy and it doesn't all have to stem from trauma. Like there are ways to be funny that are just thinking silly thoughts and making people laugh. But I don't think that that person needs to write a personal memoir. Yeah, because a memoir is not just being able to fill pages with anecdotes. As you've said before, it's revealing something about yourself. I think the best memoirs are ones where I'm like, if I didn't even know who this person was, I still would have found the story interesting. If you remove Colin Jost from this story... I don't know why you would pick it up twice. And there's just no self to be revealed. And then he has a chapter called Why I Love My Mom, which is about 9-11. His mom is a doctor. She's the chief medical officer for the New York City Fire Department. And so he talks about on 9-11 how scary it was for him and his family to figure out where she would be when the towers went down. And of course, as soon as she heard about the first tower getting hit, she went into New York City to try to help all the firefighters she could help. And she was there the whole day. One of the most important parts of her job was being on site for emergencies to treat firefighters as they're handling emergencies. So she would be kind of on the sidelines treating the firefighters that needed help. And so obviously when 9-11 happened, she went straight to the sidelines, but there were no sidelines. I mean, the entire lower Manhattan was engulfed and she was there as the towers were falling. He has this email that he got from his dad on September 11th at 11.51 a.m. Mom's okay. She did get caught in the secondary collapse, but dug herself out and is okay. Wow. I'll keep in touch. That's a really stressful email. Indeed. He writes a really sweet ode to his mom. There are many reasons why I love my mom. I love that while she took care of her fire department family, she never neglected her real family. We never felt like she was absent or not fully present in our lives. I love her as a role model. I love how caring and thoughtful she is towards my dad. And I love how she wrangles her grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins to come to every holiday. Most of all, I love how grateful my mom is. 
She would always tell us, I have the luckiest job in the world. I mean, that is a really lovely note. And his mom is insanely impressive and could probably write a better memoir. And then he has a chapter about the time he did a semester abroad in Russia. He goes for one summer to see if he can translate a never before translated Russian short story because he majored in like Russian literature and he wanted to write his dissertation on it. He wins a grant to get to go, which is again, like clearly he was a standout. He like won a grant to go to Russia for the summer, but it was awful. He stayed with somebody's grandparents who did not speak English. Nobody was nice to him and he got so lonely he came home. And he also didn't translate the thing. So he graduates college. He moves in with some of his buddies. They get an apartment in Brooklyn. And then he gets a job writing for a newspaper back on Staten Island. And he's like, how funny is it that I'm still commuting an hour and a half, but now it's the other way around. And it's like, very funny, Colin. So he got this apartment in Stytown with two of his friends. Oh, sorry. It was in Manhattan. I said he got an apartment in Brooklyn. I lied. Oh. (laughs) I was living off my winnings from appearing on the game show The Weakest Link. Unfortunately, I was really bad at The Weakest Link, so my prize was only $6,000. Kind of a good amount of money. I can't believe he went on The Weakest Link. What a random thing for anyone to have done. I think anytime somebody was on a game show, I'm like, tell me that story. Tell me your life story. How did we get to now? I used to love watching The Weakest Link. You had to look up YouTube clips. There was this woman, and every time you got kicked off the no, show. No, I know. I know. You are the weakest thing. Goodbye. Yeah, but you're not saying it funny like she said it. I know how she said it. I just didn't want to do the accent and ruin the day of our listeners. You could do it, though. No, it's ruined. <laughs> <laughs> do it. You go for it. I didn't feel confident enough. No, now I'm second guessing myself. I think we can all hear it in our head. I don't think anybody needs to do it. Okay, let's just do a moment to close your eyes and think of it. As two gals officially in our cooking era, HelloFresh has been nothing short of a gift. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make cooking easy, fun, and affordable. If you've ever wasted hours and hours scouring the grocery store for that one ingredient to complete your recipe, HelloFresh takes away all the hassle by delivering fresh, pre-portioned ingredients so you have exactly what you need and it helps you cut down on food waste. With over 40 weekly recipes, you can also choose from over 100 items to round out your order from snacks and easy lunches to desserts and pantry necessities. Everything arrives in one box on a delivery day that you choose. Learning to cook has been so intimidating for me. I get so stressed out by just the idea of it. So having a very clear cut Here's the recipe. Here are the ingredients delivered right to my door has helped me really master the idea that I can actually cook something in the kitchen. It is the most stress-free way that I've ever felt this accomplished. I also feel like it's given me a little bit more confidence to really play around in the kitchen, add a spice of my own here and there, maybe swap out some proteins, like really figure out what a recipe is. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Worm16 and use the code Worm16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Worm16 and the code is Worm16 for 16 free meals and free shipping. Anyway, the weirdness of local news on Staten Island was one of the reasons I loved the job. He like wrote an article about raccoons. The whole point of this is to really prove to you that he had a job at one point before graduating and going to SNL. So within five months, he was just writing and submitting packets to every single TV show in New York. And the way he says it, to just be Joe Schmo about it, he's like, I was applying to all these TV shows I applied to. You don't apply to TV shows. You have to write and submit a packet. Was he just like emailing Jimmy Fallon? Yes. That's literally what he says he was doing. I know, but I don't believe him because that's not a thing. He says, I didn't have an agent or a manager. He does say the only two places he got callbacks were the two places that notoriously will take random packets. 
Okay, I believe that he was submitting without representation, but the way he talks about just like cold emailing everyone in town, he wrote for the Harvard Lampoon. He knows professional TV writers. There's no way he like didn't understand how the hiring process of a TV show worked. Like when I graduated college, I didn't understand the hiring process of a TV show. I didn't have people in my immediate circle who are now Conan O'Brien. Yeah, so maybe he wasn't just sending them to the late night show, but he was sending them to his friend to show at the late night show. Yeah. I believe he was being very adamant about trying to get a TV writing job, but I don't believe he had this like, who knows what's to come attitude about it. Like, I think he knew the steps. Out of all the shows I applied to, only one responded. But the one response was The Late Show with David Letterman. He ends up not getting the job. But then when he quits his newspaper job, he and his friends are like writing for some animated show where they get like $450 a week. But that only lasts a few months because then he gets a meeting at Saturday Night Live. So he gets a call and they say, we want you to come to the office next week. You're going to meet with Tina Fey and Andrew Steele, our two head writers. And then you might meet with Lauren. So he meets with them. Six hours later, he meets with Lauren. And then he gets this call like the next week saying, you got it. I was 22 when I got hired at SNL. They did do this weird thing where actually that day they hired him and he just had to go wait in one of the rooms. And then he got a call in the room he was in. He's like, I just knew I was supposed to pick up the phone. And he picked it up and it was the producer saying, congrats, you're hired. He's like, it was weird that they had to call me on the phone to tell me that I got the job in the building that they were working. That is weird. They're a quirky bunch. He said it was very stressful. We know SNL has a very rigorous schedule. Monday through Saturday, they work their little behinds off. And then Saturday night, they party till dawn. And then Sunday, they get one day of sleep. He actually got a sketch on his very first week and it ended up being the very first sketch of the episode. I had written the first sketch of my first show at SNL, which I didn't realize at the time is extremely rare. So you're a good writer. You work hard. I mean, congratulations. He says sometimes it gets really hard and he wants to leave, especially when his jokes don't go through. But even when I was angry or felt like I sucked and I couldn't get a sketch on the show, I was still deeply grateful to work at SNL. It's not for everyone. And there are clearly funny people who fail at it and then go on to tremendous success. See Larry David. But it's an incredible opportunity. And whether you flourish or explode in flames, you leave there a tougher, more capable comedian. It was an opportunity I never took for granted. So much of your career is driven by your peers. Lauren always says, you never want to be the smartest person in the room. You want to challenge yourself and try to get to the level of the people you admire. He then goes on to all the people who have been nice to him. Everyone's offered to write with him and punch up his jokes. Everybody's so nice at SNL. He got to write for a lot of really good host musical guest combos. SNL is probably the least routine job in the world. And then he goes through the routine of SNL, which I find funny. He's like, Monday is the pitch meeting. Tuesday, you're all writing all day. Wednesday is a table read. Thursday, you're at a rewrite table with other writers. Friday, you're either in rehearsing or filming. And then Saturday, there's a show followed by two parties. To me, that is a routine. <laughs> Again, more than anything, I wrote as much as I physically could. I submitted five or six sketches every week in hopes of developing quickly as a writer. I mean, he talks about just working so hard. And I believe that he did because he's obviously been extremely successful at Saturday Night Live. But I don't really care. And then he tells a really boring story about a time he went to Scandinavia with Seth Meyers and then the other SNL writers. Yeah, and he like fell asleep in a graveyard and then got sick and they had to like rearrange their trip around him, even though Seth Meyers had run a literal marathon on that trip. Also, he went to a club and met a girl and because they were all biking everywhere, he had a biker back to the hotel and then she didn't want to fuck him anymore. So he biked them both back. It must be hard being Colin Jost, someone that no one except Scarlett Johansson wants to fuck. <laughs> And the random girls he DMs on Instagram. Then he gets promoted to head writer. And would you believe that's pretty hard? Being the head writer at SNL is like being an assistant zookeeper at a zoo where you used to be a monkey. 
it's really hard to tell your friends that their jokes aren't going to get on and their sketches are getting cut. And he realizes that he doesn't control that much. So he has to like do the best job at controlling what he can. And that had always been a goal of his. And so it was pretty cool to get the job. But then the job part of the job came and that proved overwhelming. He ended up having heart palpitations. And they were like, do you think it's bad that you're sleeping five hours a week and eating garbage and not working out and stressed? And he says, yes. Then he has a chapter about all the times he shit his pants. He just like has IBS. I don't know. It just seems like he gets <laughs> diarrhea a lot and can't find a bathroom in time. I like really wish I hadn't read it. And I think that one of the most offensive parts of the entire chapter is actually the intro where he says, if you're like related to him or dating him, you should skip it. But to the rest of you, you're welcome. You're welcome? Why would you think I want to read about shit? Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to cut and paste this entire chapter into WebMD and try to figure out what the hell is wrong with me. It's IBS. A whipping good joke. I shit a lot. What's going on? So then he talks about being a stand-up comedian, which I actually had no idea that he was. I cannot fathom what his stand-up would be like. He has no perspective or point of view. I mean, I bet it's just like silly jokes, which is fun in its own way. I had no idea that he even did stand-up, and he talks about venues and clubs and things that I know about. And he says he goes up all the time, like four nights a week. I'm just like, I've never seen your name anywhere. I had no idea. I think you might just be like the most deeply forgettable man alive. (laughs) He talks about one of his worst gigs ever was he did a college gig where they put the pizza out on a table right in front of the mic, and people just kept coming up and getting pizza throughout his set. I was like, if that's your worst gig, that's not so bad. (laughs) Yeah, I guess the reason I don't care is because as a stand-up comedian who is less successful, I know that those college gigs pay like crazy. So I'm sorry that you had an uncomfortable afternoon where people ate pizza in front of you. You probably made (laughs) $5,000. Yeah. (laughs) And there are probably like tons of people back in those basements that you talk about cutting your teeth in that would have loved to do that pizza gig. And then he talks about getting out of the Brooklyn and more indie rooms and trying to make way at the clubs. And then he talks about finally getting JFL, which is New Faces Just for Laughs. It's a credit for comedians. It's basically a showcase. And he actually describes it pretty well. He goes, you know, 10 years ago, you would go to this showcase and come out with a sitcom six months later. And now you go in and you get to tell other comedians you were on the showcase. He auditioned for a couple of years. Most people audition several times before they get it, if they ever get it. And finally, he gets it. It gave me my first real credit as a comedian. He had been writing for SNL at five years. Why do you think SNL is not a credit? Let me ask you, the audience, people who are not like well-versed in stand-up comedy industry events, what would be more impressive to you? Somebody who is a JFL new face or an SNL writer? What have you even heard of? This is the kind of shit where I'm like, what do you mean you finally got a credit after five years of duking it out? You've been writing for SNL this whole time. I wrote in the margin, is SNL not a credit? That was crazy. So then he goes to a wedding one weekend and he had a real predicament, you see. He had finally landed a stand-up taped special. It was going to be a 15-minute thing that aired on TBS. But the problem was his friend was getting married the day before. He says, you see the predicament. Friday, bachelor party. Saturday, wedding party. After party till 5 a.m. Sunday, important career goal. I don't think this was a predicament. This was like a choice he made. Yeah. One thing that I would do if I had a really important thing on Sunday is I would like not party till 5 a.m. on Saturday. I will say an after party is not like mandatory till doors close. It's the after party. If you went just simply the party, you would have been fine. You would have been in the clear. I mean, me and Claire already discussed it. This book brought up quite a hypothetical. I said, if I had something extremely important the day after your wedding, would you be mad if I left at 1 a.m.? I think you even said two glasses of champagne and I'm out at midnight. And I said reasonable. I think that that's just like a really reasonable thing to do. Especially for a guy. They don't care. I mean, showing up at all is like a nice thing to do for your friend. 
One of the things he did on the night out is he did break his hand by trying to show off to a hockey player how hard he could punch. For the Chicago listeners, it was Dave Boland, and this was the year after the Blackhawks had won their 2010 Stanley Cup. So there he is in his first ever taped stand-up special with a cast on his arm. And this was an absolutely unpreventable situation. And then he has a chapter called SNL Sketchbook where he goes through some of the sketches he's like best that he's written. And I will say this, I've skipped two chapters in my entire tenure at Celebrity Memoir Book Club. One was this chapter and one was the chapter where Alec Baldwin explained what he thought America needed to do to save democracy. And these are both chapters that I do not regret skipping. I have to have respect for myself. I have to say, at the end of the day, this is just a paycheck. And there are some things that I will not do for money. And one of them is read Colin Jost describe his own SNL sketches. If I wanted to hear a recap of an SNL sketch, I would call my parents on a Sunday. <laughs> and they would say, you know, it's not very good that SNL anymore, but they did have one funny one. And then they would explain it to me in detail. And there's a reason I don't call my parents on Sundays is because nobody should have to hear the recap of an SNL sketch. If I wanted to watch it, I would watch it. Do you know what my problem is? I don't even get just the recap of an SNL sketch. I get the half recap where my dad assumes I've watched it, even though he knows very well after every discussion we've ever had on a Sunday that I don't watch it. Every week he goes, so did you see that one? I go, no, I didn't see that one. I didn't see any of them. Support for today's episode comes from Jenny Kane. Think minimalist meets luxury. Jenny Kane items are classic, comfortable, and California-inspired clothes from the cotton or cashmere knit sweater you are obsessed with to the flowy summer dress you never want to take off. With elevated everyday basics and wardrobe essentials, getting dressed is easier than ever. When it comes to investing in an outfit that'll last, we choose Jenny Kane. For a limited time, our listeners get 15% off their entire order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code WORM to get 15% off. I have the Jenny Kane cropped cashmere cocoon sweater, and it is, first of all, without a doubt, the softest thing I have ever owned. My skin, every time I put it on, I feel like I want to drink it. And this cropped sweater, the thing that I love about it is that it's cropped, but it's not too croppy. It hits right at the jeans line, which is the length of sweater that I'm always looking for. I feel like it creates the most polished but comfortable outfit, and I feel so good in it every time I wear it. With summer almost here, Jenny Kane embodies the California dream. Jenny Kane has such perfect flowy dresses, perfect summer flats. And of course, these sweaters are so comfortable for a chilly morning, for a night when you're at the beach and it gets cold out and you want to throw on a sweater over your shorts and tank top. It's just everything that I've ever wanted. Jenny Kane is known for their luxuriously lightweight, perfect for any season sweaters from their classic cotton cocoon cardigan to the luxe cotton fisherman sweater or the best-selling Chloe crew neck. These are core pieces you can dress up or down all season long. The cotton sweaters pair perfectly with weekends or work days, and they look so put together, layered or worn solo. Jenny Kane believes in one thing, the art of simplicity. With a focus on comfort, quality, and timeless design, Jenny Kane makes pieces that truly never go out of style. Find your forever pieces at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code WORM at checkout. That's 15% off your first order, J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com, promo code WORM. Mamas, this is your month. Treat yourself to a little gift. Then he gets Weekend Update, but only for a short eight-episode run at the end of a season. And he eats shit. He does such a bad job. All of the reviewers say, we hate that Colin Jost. We actually don't know if all the reviewers said it. He said a few of them do. Okay. But that was enough. Well, he really talked it up in a way where it seemed like he was having a horrible time. 
he let too many voices into his head. Everyone gave him contradicting advice. He does talk about how he replaced Seth Meyers, who was pretty beloved, and how difficult that was a position to be in. And he quotes Gilbert Gottfried, who actually has a very funny quote. He was part of the second SNL cast, which took over from the original group in 1980. Gilbert said, imagine at the height of Beatlemania, if they took away the Beatles or replaced them with a whole new bunch of Beatles. That is funny. If you went to a place where they didn't watch Saturday Night Live or like American late night television and you put Seth Meyers and Colin Jost in a room together, how could you tell them apart? You know who he started with, though, this Colin Jost? He started with Kristen Wiig, Andy Samberg, Bill Hader, and Jason Sudeikis. So he was in the writer's room only at SNL for years and years. He's been there for a long ass time. So then at the end of that summer, he really wants to still do Weekend Update. He knows he's bombed it, but he's determined like this is my one shot. I can't let people make me feel bad about myself. I have to go for it. Just because they say I can't do it doesn't mean I can't do it. This is my only opportunity. I have to like work really hard all summer and go for it. And it turns out they're holding auditions for Weekend Update. So he's like, well, can I audition for the job that I've already had? And they let him audition with five of the other people. It's like him, Michael Che, Leslie Jones, Cecily Tyson, Vanessa Bayer. Him and Michael end up doing well. He's like, a lot of people told me I should stick to being the straight man. And I'm like, well, that's what you ended up doing. No, isn't he kind of Michael Che's straight man? I thought so. So that's the report they have. And he says Michael Che has given him a lot of confidence in himself to say, it's okay if nobody likes me. I'll keep trying hard. In order to get Weekend Update, he says, I stepped down as head writer. I stopped going on the road to do stand-up during off weeks. I let the director and studio edit the movie I wrote. I wanted to succeed at one thing instead of failing at four. What movie did he write? He talks a lot about the pilots and the movies he's written. And I'm like, have any of them come out? Like, maybe you are a bad comedy writer. He's been at SNL for 15 years. And he's like, well, I'm just scared to go and fail at something else. And I'm like, wow, you must know that you've already failed at something else. Because that's a long time to be at SNL and have the name recognition you have. And if you've been writing all this time and trying to get other things off the ground, why aren't they off the ground? Yeah. So he becomes the Weekend Update host, which we know he is to this day. The thing is, he decides he wants something. He goes after it. He gets it. I'll accept writing something outside of SNL, I guess. It is just hard to understand what he's complaining about because this is whiny. And then the final section of these three chapters, he has three chapters about Weekend Update is about how now it's going good and they figured out their voice and he's very happy and he can't believe he's still here. Then he does a chapter of SNL FAQs, which are literally just the most boring things anyone's ever written about SNL. He also has a story about the time Jimmy Buffett saved his life. So he claims that he had this girlfriend who wrote for the Wall Street Journal and that Vice invited her on an all-expenses-paid trip to St. Bart's. And he acts like he was so lucky to be this plus one on this elaborate trip. Because you guys know how journalists are often lavished with expensive gifts. First of all, it was a very funny chapter to read in lieu of the Vice bankruptcy. He was like, you don't understand. The villa alone was 150 k a week. And I'm like, okay, Vice, well, I see where the money problem started. But also, I'm like, Colin Jost, you're also the weekend update guy. Why are you acting like your journalist girlfriend is your ticket to the stars? Like, I'm going to get to hobnob with celebrities because of my journalism girlfriend. While telling you the story about how he became so successful, it's very important that you forget that he's very successful. Yeah, he like really won't let himself have it because it like contradicts a narrative that only he cares about. Anyway, at this dinner, he meets Jimmy Buffett, who invites him to go surfing. They go surfing. Jost really thinks of himself as a surfer. He constantly talks about how he would never say he's a good surfer, but he surfs. Yeah, he's not a great surfer, but he like he knows his way around a wave. And anyway, he goes out there. He doesn't know his way around these waves. But he gets caught in rocks. And Jimmy Buffett is like, dude, get off the rocks. And it saves his life. He also talks about like constantly not knowing that he's talking to a famous person and then being like, oh, my God, that's Jimmy Buffett. And then he talks about Donald Trump hosting SNL, which is something he genuinely should not have brought up. So basically his take is, listen, when we had him on the show, we had no idea he'd actually win. 
But at the end of the day, SNL is filled with moderates and Republicans just like the rest of America. And if you say that having him on is an endorsement, then I guess we endorsed Hillary too. That's what we do. We have relevant people on the show. And also, he was very likable in real life. He says that everybody liked him after he worked with us. He's incredibly charming and fun to talk to unless he thinks you're unattractive, in which case he'll ignore you. Or he thinks you're very attractive, in which case he'll try to touch or kiss you, allegedly. I guess just to make a joke about how Donald Trump sexually assaults people is not that funny to me. That's the thing. Is he's like, I liked him because the first time I met him, he said, you have a good face. I found that very charming. And I'm like, yeah, of course you found that charming. He saw you as an equal. To all the people he doesn't see as an equal, he's like horribly abusive to. He also is like, you know, he showed up by himself and spent the whole week at SNL, whereas Hillary came with like a team of 15 and was only there for five minutes. Do you think it's because people try to murder women in politics a lot? Well, no, I think it's because she actually was running for president and he was just trying to get famous. He ran for president to be on SNL. Her end goal was not to be on SNL. He's basically like my German grandpa where he's fun and endearing when he's in your living room. But if you gave him a microphone and had him speak at a rally for two hours straight, he'd probably say some weird stuff. I guess weird stuff is a clean way to put it. He kind of is trying to be like, listen, a lot of people like Trump and us at SNL, we reflect a lot of people. Like he pitches jokes about building the wall to Trump at SNL. So like that rhetoric was already out there and he's sitting there saying people say weird stuff sometimes. And now this book, which came out in 2020, has seen three and a half years of a Trump presidency and he still thinks that this is a good crack. He has a chapter about alcohol and drugs, which again breaks my rule of stop fucking telling me about times you got too high. It's not that funny or interesting. Would you believe it? He had a pot brownie and it made him paranoid. I've never even heard of anything like that. So then he goes to visit the Google offices one day. He's about to take his first vacation in two years. You have to understand. He's taking a vacation and his manager is like, hey, Google wants to show you cool VR stuff they're working on. And he's like, that sounds sick. I'll go. He goes in and they like put him in this VR world on like a giant diving board and they say jump and he jumps and he ends up jumping into a metal desk and needing stitches and he has to be on crutches for his whole vacation. And he's like, why the fuck would you put me next to a desk and tell me to jump? And they're like, well, no one's ever jumped before. And he mentioned several times wanting to punch this Google worker in the face. And I'm like, I don't know, man, this does suck. Like, it is annoying. But stop being like, it was my first week off in two years. All I wanted to do was have a nice vacation. And instead, I was on crutches because this guy made me VR too hard. And it's like, that does suck. And if you told this in any other way, I'd be like, oh, man, that sucks. But I guess I just don't care. I'm sorry that your job doing comedy and partying a lot is like so stressful that you needed to have a vacation where you didn't have stitches. Well, the other thing is the Google guy was like making fun of him via text on the projector and didn't know. Oh, yeah. I mean, I will say if Google invited me over and then had me get injured, I'd be like, what the fuck? I would be so mad about it. I guess the way Colin frames the story, though, to be like, you don't understand. I'm truly an underdog. I'm like, ah. Yeah, for him to be like, I never get a vacation. That's by choice. It's because when you get time off from SNL, you choose to use it to work on other projects. Still, Google should not invite you in and then tell you to jump on something sharp and then be like, well, we didn't know that you would listen to us. No, he like could have sued for sure. I honestly would have preferred he just quietly sued them instead of writing this stupid chapter. <laughs> Worst Emmys ever. He hosted the Emmys with Michael Che. The feedback was bad. He goes through all of the things they wanted to do, but there wasn't enough time. And he blames the shortness of time and the fact that so many things get shut down. The thing is, the show was bad, but it's totally not his fault. I will say some of the ideas he pitched did make me laugh. One of the things they wanted the microphone to go into the floor as people were getting cut off for time. And I did think it'd be very funny to have to watch people like get on their knees and like lower to the ground to finish their speeches. He tells a story about going to Europe with Scarlett Johansson. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. And a bunch of kids just like start throwing tomatoes at him in the street and he chases them down and steals their bike. 
this is not a likable story to me. No, but I don't think it's supposed to be likable. I think it's supposed to be funny because then he throws it into a construction pit so that they can't get it back. It's like a city bike situation where you pay for every hour. And then it turns out where he threw it was the Musée d'Orsay. I will say the joke of this is he knows he's actually ridiculous because Scarlett's being like, don't do this. And then the police come and it's a museum. So I'll give him this one. Like in this joke, he thinks he's the butt of the joke because he overreacted to these kids. Okay. Whether or not it was still worth my time, no. But I do think if you were to say, do you think you came out on top? I guess I don't think he came out on top, but I think that like it makes me wonder why you would write this story down for people to read. I guess I think he thinks it's a funny story of him being like ridiculous and overreacting to something. Okay. He was ridiculous and overreacted. You're right. Successful (laughs) chapter. (laughs) Congrats, Colin. You got one. It's this one and then the one where your mom was in 9-11 that I'll say were worth it. And then he has a chapter about the time he was in WrestleMania. Chai asked him to do it. And I don't even know. I was skimming it. The thing is, he thinks he almost won the fight of WrestleMania against like professional play fighters. So I don't know what he thinks is going on there. But I refuse to indulge a man's like fake fight fantasy. Matthew McConaughey had the same thing where he claims he went to a small village in Africa and beat the best wrestler in town. I don't believe it. I don't care. And I won't support it. Then he goes to Costa Rica with his girlfriend and a bug lays eggs in his leg. Maybe. He has a doctor suggest that it might be MRSA or it might be this bots flies. And he never really confirms which one it was. And it makes me think that it was just MRSA. But for a moment, he thought he might have something bad. So this is a story about the time he didn't have a bot fly eggs in his leg, but he could have. Okay, so something may or may not have planted an egg in his leg. And if it didn't, it was just MRSA. And if it did, then he's fine either way right now. And then we have the epilogue about how he will one day leave SNL, but he doesn't know when. And he's scared of leaving SNL because what if he fails? And that's uh, the worst fucking book. So whoever recommended this, I say this sincerely. I like am mad at you. And I hope you feel attacked by what I'm saying directly to you because I don't know that I can handle taking on another one of your suggestions. I have a question. Yeah. Who does Zadie Smith have a debt to? Because Zadie Smith says that this is a great book. No, but here's the thing is she doesn't say it's a great book, but she does have a quote in this book, which I'm like, why did she even provide that? This is actually a really funny thing to say. Colin Jost is as funny as his face is punchable, which is to say very. He also knows a lot about Staten Island, soiling himself, internal parasites, and firemen's pensions. He really is the whole package. I mean, it's just very funny to be like, He is a funny man. I want to punch him in the face. He's heard of Staten Island. Like that is also what I could say about this book if I was trying really hard to not offend someone. This sentence doesn't even make sense. And if you care about comedy, writing it, performing it, watching it, or giving up any semblance of a normal adult life for it, so is his book. And if you care about comedy, so is his book. It's such a funny quote to be like, he says stuff and I want to punch him. Just like he said you would. Yeah, I don't know. This fucking sucked. Comedy books suck. This one was worse than most of them. The other thing is I don't even hate him. I'm just like, I knew better than to read this book, even for this podcast. But some of you like insisted. And I guess I'm more mad at you guys than him because I knew what was going to happen. This was honestly everything bad about Seth Rogen and everything bad about Amy Schumer and Amy Poehler, but combined into one. There was just nothing there. It is annoying to watch someone insist they're the underdog when nothing about their life has been under. My theory is if his dad had been the doctor instead of his mom, none of this would have even held water. Like, can you imagine being like, oh, you don't understand. I'm just this poor kid from Staten Island who went to Harvard with a dad who's a doctor. I think because his mom's a doctor, like it doesn't count as much for some reason. Yeah. In terms of like socioeconomic perceptions. 
even just saying I'm from Staten Island, people are like, oh my God, and you went to Harvard? But he doesn't belong in Staten Island. He's never felt at home there. The thing is, he does feel at home there. He loves it there. He loves that he goes back and his whole family lives on the same street. He just doesn't like that he's like from there. He wishes his whole family was from the same street, but in like Long Island. Anyway, we love you guys so much. Yeah. Except for those of you who <laughs> thought this was a good book. You guys need to look at yourselves deep in the mirror. See you next week, Sailor. And don't forget, not the week after. Thank you so much to Sydney998. I just got the 411 and it's that Sydney998 friggin' rules. Thank you, Alyssa Cruz. I hope you are having a beautiful day sailing the high seas. Thank you, Mia Stoner. Hey, smoke them if you got them, baby. Thank you, Ram0513. I wish I could ram my genuine thanks right into your noggin. Thank you, Pseudo Lister. To me, you are a top tier lister. Thank you, Liver Lives 123 ABC. You are my numero uno favorite organ. Thank you, Hollywood Crime Junkie. I hope you get all of the crime you crave. Thank you, G.W. Puente. You were my favorite president, George Washington. I don't know if that was clear. Thank you, Night Blooming Jana. You bloom 24-7 to me. And Pager522. Thank you so much. I cannot wait to page you with my thanks. I love you guys so much. See you next week.